Well, good morning. <sighs> Try that again. Good morning. good morning. Oh, so much better. I'm sure you're not tired. Those who I saw are still at midnight having to chat in the lower Baronia Lounge. While I'm getting set up, have a stretch. You may have realized yesterday these are big talks. Stand up, get the blood flowing. You've been sitting for a few minutes. I will give you some stretch breaks. Stretch, move your arms, jog on the spot, and sit down. All right. I will give a small disclaimer. This talk is even bigger than yesterday's. So sorry if yesterday blindsided you, you've been warned today. So do what you need to do to stay awake, please, and attentive. But I do promise to give you some breaks throughout. If you're joining us, it's really glad, I'm really glad to have you here. Uh, we'll try and bring you up to speed as much as we can. Well, imagine that you are a first century Jew. Let's say your name is Shefer. That's a nice one, it means pleasant you guys. Uh, you've heard rumors of this Jesus fellow. You come to see John the Baptist, who's spoken with this sense of urgency of the Messiah coming. And you've heard what Jesus says, and you've seen how he says it, and you've seen the things that he does, and they're astounding. Now, Shefer, you're a good Jew. You were brought up reciting the Shema that we saw yesterday. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheka, Adonai Ehad. Yahweh is God, Yahweh is one, God alone. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, of Jacob, the God who brought your people out of Egypt, who judged you with the exile, who promised to redeem you. And yet, here is this man, a creature saying things and doing things that are attributable to only God and God alone. Now, apart from my poor period drama storytelling, I hope you at least get the point that for the average Jew in the first century, Jesus posed a problem. And while I doubt many of us are Jewish, we hit the same problem from a different angle, don't we? How do you square what Jesus says and does with a monotheistic doctrine of God? Or a step further, how did we arrive at the idea that God is this trinity that we've been talking about? Now in the last two talks, I've tried to give you what I see as necessary grounding for us to make sense of this claim. God's oneness, his perfections, his aseity, that self-existent life that he has. His simplicity, the oneness, the indivisible nature of God. And I talked about how these function as theological guardrails, the crash barriers that stop us veering off the road into heresy. And so to tackle this, following a similar pattern to what we did yesterday, we're going to start with the Bible. We'll take some key moments of Jesus' life that we just had read for us and see how they flag a deeper reality. Then we're going to step back and make sense of them theologically, do that 
integrating, systematizing work that doctrine requires. And throughout this, we're going to be guided by our working paradigm that the God of the gospel is revealed in the gospel of God. That we know him by his self-disclosure and that paramount to this self-revelation is what we call the missions, the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Let me pray for us. Loving Father, thank you that you did send your Son. Please today, may my words be true. May the thoughts and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We thank you that you are God with us. Amen. So, as our Jewish alter ego has already begun to show us, Jesus' arrival on the scene marks a disruption to the status quo. God, who by his nature communicates and has done from the start, has made himself known now in a new way which confronts us. Let's focus on some of these key moments. The man, the dove, and the voice from above. Have a look at that Matthew chapter 3 passage, Jesus' baptism, which is recounted in each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and is alluded to in John. From verse 16, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. See, similar to what Ethan showed us last night, what's immediately on focus is Jesus' humanity. His association with Israel, he lined up with the others for baptism. But it suddenly takes on a whole new level. Heaven is opened. In Mark's telling, it's literally torn, split, and something like a dove descends and a voice speaks. Now let's step through this bit by bit. First, note that Jesus gets into the water with us. See, one of the central claims of Christianity is that God entered the world to save the world. And all of this happens in the context of baptism for the repentance of sins. That was John's message for being washed and recentering yourself on God. And as we'll see, this encapsulates something of the wonder of God's humility revealed to us in Jesus, that Jesus gets into the water with us, with sinners. God the Son drawing near, meeting us, providing for us forgiveness and salvation. In this watery moment, we see the beginning of the Son's earthly mission to save us. Our theologian friend, Fred, Fred, Fred from yesterday, wins my esteem even more. He loves puns. And he put it this way, Jesus dove into the human gene pool so he could step into the waters of the Jordan for our salvation. Isn't that great? Next up, heaven is torn. 
Now this is possibly an echo of Isaiah 64, Isaiah 64 verses 1 to 12, which is a heartfelt prayer starting that God would tear heaven open and come down to intervene in history in order to save his people once more. And from this opening comes something dove-like, the Spirit of God descending to rest on Jesus. Now across the Old Testament, the Spirit has been present. You, you see him at moments. And he particularly works by coming upon people to enable them to do God's work. For example, in Isaiah 61, a verse that Jesus uses to kick off his earthly ministry starts by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to announce good news, exactly what Jesus is about to do. And finally, the voice from above speaks. This, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is like the ultimate dad brag moment. If you want a taste of that, Aaron's little boy started walking the other day. Go and ask him how excited he was. That's my boy. And the content of this this word that comes from heaven is a remix of at least two, maybe three Old Testament passages. First up is Psalm 2, where God, speaking to his anointed king, declares, You are my son, today I have become your father. That the messianic king would rule the nations alongside God himself. Secondly, there's Isaiah 42 verse 1, part of what's known as the servant songs, which reads, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit in him. That is, this is the spirit-enabled one who would achieve deliverance for God's people and for their enemies from sin. And there's perhaps one final echo from Genesis 22, verse 12, where Abraham, taking his son Isaac to sacrifice him, there's this repetition throughout that narrative that he must take his son, his only son whom he loves. How do you make sense of this event? On one level, we could conclude that it's purely creaturely, that Jesus was and just remains a man, perhaps impressing God, winning his favor, even being adopted, some would say, but not divine. Similarly, another false trail could be to interpret this as having three distinct beings at once. Three gods. That would be, as we'll see, the heresy of tritheism. Or perhaps you could come to it from what's called a modalistic point of view. That there's one God who just expresses himself in three ways. Kind of like wearing different masks. But I think this is an incredibly difficult passage to make sense of in the modalistic world view. For we have three distinct persons present at the same time, in the same room, if you like. You would have to end up with some kind of special effects of the Spirit and a ventriloquist act by Jesus. 
I think these conclusions only make sense. These false trails can only make sense if you neglect the fuller picture of Scripture. The picture that we have across the Gospels and even the Old Testament testimony. Yes, we have here divine testimony and confirmation that Jesus is the messianic servant of God. But I think there's also something deeper. That here we have a glimpse opening up into the very life and love of God. There's a second strikingly similar episode in Jesus' life, that second passage we had read, Matthew 17, which we've already touched on this weekend. Jesus goes up on a mountain with his close friends, Peter, James, and John, and he's praying, which as a side note, Luke notes that both the baptism and this moment on the mountain starts with Jesus praying in the Spirit. And it's like we're back in Deuteronomy 4, back at Sinai. Thick clouds and a brightness of God's glory envelop the crowd. This brightness, I think, is probably the Spirit's presence, the Shekinah cloud as it's talked about in the Old Testament. The same cloud of God's presence that filled the tabernacle and the temple. And then Moses and Elijah appear, but as weird as that is, our attention is not actually fixed on them, it's fixed on Jesus. Because it's like a curtain has been pulled back and his true glorious nature is revealed in blindingness. Jesus is there. Tick. The Spirit is there. Tick. What are we missing? The voice. This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. See if at the baptism it was a dad brag. Here there's much more force added. The command, listen. And I take, it, uh, take this to mean at least that God wants to say something through Jesus. And he wants us to listen. John calls Jesus the Word. The Word. God speaking to us, now enfleshed in a person. Just as God beckoned Israel at Sinai, remember, to draw near and hear his words, in Jesus, God has come near. He comes in the flesh and is the very speech of God. There is a form seen this time alongside the voice. What will we hear, I wonder, if we pay attention? See, all that Jesus says and does is worth listening to. That is why at Credo, we love the Bible. We love hearing it regularly and that is one of the best practices you can give yourself to it's regularly listening to god through his word but let's think in terms of the idea of god's self-disclosure see one of the central claims that jesus makes and which his followers readily ascribe to him is that he is the son of god the huiutheu in the greek which is exactly how mark starts his gospel the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the Son of God. Okay, Mark, Mark just spoils things from the start. Now, on one level, scholars point out that Son of God can mean merely like a kingly title, kind of like Her Royal Highness. It's a messianic title. And it certainly does have this sense from places like Psalm 2 that we saw and 2 Samuel 7 in particular, where God promises to call David's kingly offspring his son. 
But I think the New, uh, New Testament writers want us to see a greater depth to this term. That the Messiah wasn't merely just a human king, but had elements of divinity about him. That the Son of God was also God the Son. God himself, somehow. Let me just show you a few examples of this. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The Apostle Paul here gives two senses in which Jesus is the Son of God. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, that thing that reveals, remember, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son. It's a gospel regarding his Son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, first, it is that messianic David sense. He's a son of God by merit of being a descendant of King David. But even this wasn't just merely human. For if you trace the theme of God's chosen king, especially in the Psalms, you'll see that this king is elevated to a co-ruling role with Yahweh. Divine rule. For example, in Psalm 110, verse 1, there's this blurring of the line between Yahweh's reign and his Messiah's. But secondly, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead at the hand of the Holy Spirit. Declared, notice, not made. Declared to be the Son of God. That is the resurrection is God's proclamation to the world that this is the Son with whom I'm well pleased. That his sacrifice, as we heard from last night, was enough. See, on close reading, many of the Bible texts function in this way to declare that Jesus is God's Son, the Son of God, rather than being the cause for him to be the Son, as if he was adopted at some point. And you can even see that throughout the Gospels. There's moments where Jesus' sonship becomes a central issue. For example, Matthew 22, 41 to 46. And here, Jesus himself even answers. Let me just read it to you briefly. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him that is the Christ, Lord. For he says, quote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? You can look at this more in detail later, but what's happening is the psalm that Jesus quotes in answer, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. If you look back in the original, in the Psalms, you'll see it's the capital L-O-R-D, Lord, said to my little L-O-R-D, Lord. Remember that name of God yesterday, Yahweh said to my Lord. It's a funny phrase as if 
David is writing not about himself at this point, but one that he calls Lord. The apostles also look at this in the early chapters of Acts. You can go there later if you like. But the point is there is more to the messianic title, Son of God, than simply being the king. Now on top of that, Jesus called God Father in a way that no one else did. And people took notice. In fact, that was one of the claims that led to Jesus being killed ultimately. Take John 5 for example, John 5 verse 16. Having just healed a man on the Sabbath, Jesus says, My Father is always working to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. See, for the Jews, Jesus has trespassed that important categorical line of creator and creature that we saw yesterday. Which all of this is to say we're confronted with a reality, a man claiming unique personal relationship and equality with the eternal God. See, as we read the Bible, it leads us to make certain conclusions. And sometimes we can get those wrong. We can go down false trails. And this is where the integration of theology helps and is really important. See, for the church, this particularly blew up in what it means to call Jesus the Son of God. And it prompted articulation of one of the planks of Trinitarian doctrine. That is the eternal generation of the Son. Uh, let's just start by scaling back a bit. See, sonship is an idea we can kind of get hold of, can't we? We know it firsthand in a human sense, human relationships. Even before God reveals this as part of his divine being, we know that the father-son relationship implies a relationship characterized by, by origin, a son comes from a father, and by likeness, he's like his father. Now, amongst the Credo staff, there's a plethora of sons around. I can see many of them right now. <laughs> uh, you'll have seen my three boys. They are my sons by name and by nature. They've inherited the name Atwood, and they bear a likeness to be in nature. Their looks, their temperament, their personality, and so on. But if we take the human relationship and kind of take it and plonk it onto God wholesale without any thought, we can end up with some wonky views. Because we need to understand that this is a true but analogical description of the reality of God. True but analogical. It's an analogy. It is like the father-son relationships that we experience as humans. But not exactly like it. Perhaps the most obvious example of this, the difference there is between my fatherhood and God's fatherhood, is that, to use the old school language, humans beget in a biological manner. Now, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty, but there was a time when my sons were not yet alive. 
when they weren't yet begotten, that they came into being at a point in history and simultaneously linked to that very reality, there was a time when I was not a father and when I became a father. But is this the same for God? Was there a point in time that God became a father by begetting a son? Now, some people argued yes, and I know some of you explored this in one of the seminars yesterday. This was the heresy of Arianism that sparked much debate in the church and prompted much searching for clear articulation about what the Bible is exactly saying. Was there a point in time when God became father by beginning a son? Well, the Bible says no. We could look at all sorts of places for evidence for this, but here's just one key text, John chapter 1. Hopefully you can remember it from your grow groups. John chapter 1. In his grand opening, John describes Jesus first as the Word, the communication of God, who was both with God and was God. And then he shifts from this word language into speaking of him as a son. Verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now let's have a little chat about translations here. I just read from the NIV, God, the one and only. Who here had a Bible that said something different? Just hands up. One. Really? Two? Okay. You may read some other Bibles where they'll say something like, the only God. Or if you've got a really old school Bible, it may say, the only begotten Son. And the difference is because behind this is a Greek word, monogenes, which God, uh, John uses here and in uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 3, verse 18 to describe Jesus. And it's obscured in our translations because, well, because translation can be tricky sometimes to get an exact word-for-word -word comparison. But in its essence, this word monogenes is two words joined together, the first, mono, meaning one, and then from the verb genao, meaning generated, hence only begotten, as some translations go. Now, there's a whole history to how the translations shifted and changed, and there's been a bit of a resurgence of wanting to go back to saying only begotten. And if you want more information on that, you can talk to me later and we can nerd it out. But I think if you piece this together, all that, all that John 1 says, that the word being God and with God, that the word was creating the world and coming from the Father, and then you couple this with this idea of monogenes, and if we're guided by all that Jesus says and does as we see him living and walking and acting, plus our theological crash barriers that we looked at yesterday, if we hold all of that together, I think we're led to conclude that Jesus is the Son of God by nature, not just by name. This is not a case of adoption or creation of the word, but of begetting. 
Now, I'll say more on this, but there's a sense here of a, a coming from God that, uh, that uh, encompasses Jesus, that encompasses the Son as coming from the Father. But it's an origin, a, a begetting that does not have a starting point. And so the church arrived at the language of saying the eternal generation, the eternal begetting of the Son. And you can see here that we're pushing the limits of our human language in trying to speak faithfully of what God is like. Because humanly speaking, that is a paradox. To be eternally begotten doesn't really make sense. Yet Jesus is described as coming from the Father's side in John 1, into the world, that he came pre-existent into time and history and space that he was before his human form. And we affirm that Jesus then is the eternal son, that in his incarnation, he has revealed something deeply true about his eternal nature. Why don't we have a quick stretch break? I think we probably all need it, and then we'll dive into thinking a little bit more holistically about how we piece this together. One minute, that's all you get. I said stretch break, I didn't say morning tea. All right, start coming back. Not letting you get away that easily. So if Jesus is the eternal son, begotten but without a starting point, we need to make sense of this. We're going to come back to that, but let's keep pushing into this shift we've made into starting to synthesize all that Scripture is telling us. If you're good, I'll give you another 30-second stretch break soon. Let's look at how Jesus is sent in the fullness of time. So, so far we've raised two threads that need some knitting together. One is the claim that Jesus... Uh, the is that the claims of Jesus force us to make sense of his identity and relation to God. That there seems to be some sort of plurality in God. And yet parallel to this is the idea that the way in which this is being revealed is through the sending of a son. Galatians 4, 4-6 summarizes this wonderfully. But when the time had fully come, Jesus sent his, uh, sorry, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent his spirit. We'll get to that tomorrow. The spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. See, God is not just appearing like a son as modalists would have you believe, but actually revealing something true of himself. This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So we need to think, what does the son reveal? What does the son reveal? In its most basic sense, the fact that there is a son 
leads us to believe that there is a father. You cannot be a son without a father or a father without a son. The idea is scattered across the New Testament. For example, Matthew chapter 11, 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or John chapter 1, verse 18, what we just saw. No one has ever seen God, but God, the monogenes, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is big news. God, who spoke from cloud and fire, but had no form, has come near in the word, in the flesh, in a person, and lives such a life that reveals the Father to us. Not that God is just, just a father, but also what he is like. The outcome of this is that Jesus perfectly acts out both what it is to be God, his over, overflowing love and generosity and goodness and hospitality, and what it is to be a man under God, rightly bearing God's image and rightly being like him. See, access has been granted into the aseity, the inner life of God. Fred, Fred, Fred puts it again. Had God not sent his Son and Spirit, we would not know that in himself God is Father and Son and Spirit. The one and only Son has made God known in a new way. Now we can schematize this by saying that the processions of God, the inner relational dynamic of God in his aseity, the processions express themselves and are revealed in the missions of God, the sending of the Son and the Spirit. These processions of God are like the inner movements of God apart from the creation of the world. What God was doing before he made the world. That eternally the Father beget the Son. The Son was eternally begotten of the Father. And though we haven't spoken of him much yet, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, I realize I'm making some big conceptual leaps here, but what I'm trying to do is show you evidence in detail and in the conclusions we must make given the bigger picture by covering these ideas in a bit of an iterative process. You'll notice we're kind of going forwards and backwards covering some of the same ground, touching ideas, moving on, and then coming back to them. So what the church ends up saying of God's processions is that there is an inner dynamism to God sometimes called the relations of origin. Pre-creation, he was not just a static monad, existing in isolation, but eternally existing in the mutually constitutive relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit. 
a fancy word for this, you get to learn lots of fancy words this weekend, is perichoresis. I believe Marty introduced some of you to this yesterday in his seminar. Perichoresis, it kind of means mutual indwelling. It's from places like John chapter 14, verse 10, where Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. It's like this infinite dynamic relationship of giving and receiving, of delighting and giving and constantly communication between the Father and the Spirit and the Son. The Father is well pleased with the Son and the Son rejoices in the Father in the Spirit. So we see here that there is distinction within God. There is a Son and a Father. And following on from this, we see a shape to that relationship. That the life of Jesus, the Son, glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. And following that idea, as we see that dynamic play out in the life of Jesus, it's like we hear an echo, a reverberation of the eternal relations of God. The processions of the infinitely deep and utterly free inner life of God. Recall that image I left you with yesterday of the ocean. Vast and deep and mysterious and unable to be comprehended. And there you are standing ankle deep on the shore. Theologian John Webster says that the relations of origin, the life that God has in himself within the being of God, express themselves as like the tide of the ocean meeting us in the sun and the spirit. God is that ocean whose tide is the missions of the sun and the spirit by which lost creatures are redeemed and perfected. See, God has spoken in a new way by his son. And as you listen to Jesus, the Bible invites you to encounter God. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 puts it like this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. But lest we err as we consider this plurality of God, we always have to hold it together with the unity of God. Have a look at John chapter 10, John 10, 28 to 39. Sorry, to 30, just 28 to 30. He drops, uh, Jesus is here and he drops a pretty big theological bomb as he does. John 20, uh, 10, 29 to 30. He says, My father who has given them his sheep to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. Here it comes. I and the father are one. See, for all the distinction, there is also radical unity. A oneness about God that remains alongside this relational dynamic, this perichoresis. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. All this is to say that in Jesus, we meet God himself. 
He is truly God with us. And by listening to him, receiving who he is and what he says and does, we at least can initially conclude these three things. One is that within God there are eternal relations, Father, Son, and Spirit. Second, that the Father sent the Son into the world and in so doing both reveals these divine relations, who God is, and reveals God's character, what he's like. Jesus is the exact representation, the image of God. He is like his Father. And finally, because of Jesus' constitution as fully God and fully man, that hypostatic union that Ethan mentioned, Jesus reveals God and shows us what it is to be a true son in human form. What it means for humans to live in right relationship to God in obedience and delight. So, so far we've collected some of the key pieces of evidence. The claims of Jesus' divinity, his identification as son of God, and that his coming is like a window revealing the inner life of God's eternal and relational dynamic. But you might have realized that the doctrine of the Trinity is a bit like an Ikea flat pack. <laughs> there is some assembly required. Uh, here is what one theologian, B.B. Warfield, says of it. The doctrine of the Trinity lies in Scripture in solution. When it is crystallized from its solvent, it does not cease to be scriptural, but only comes into clearer view. The doctrine of the Trinity is given to us in Scripture, but not in formulated definition, but in fragmentary allusions. When we assemble this disjecta membra, the bits, into their organic unity, we are not passing from Scripture, but entering more thoroughly into the meaning of Scripture. He's saying it's like you've got sugar dissolved in water. It's there. It's true. But the task of doctrine is to crystallize it, to draw it out. Not that it stops being true and scriptural, but that it becomes clearer in our sight. Because through the Bible, historical events that reveal Jesus are testified to in words. We don't get a nice list of dot points. Now I know UTS, we're concrete thinkers, we might prefer that. Instead of having this rich dynamic of God's personal revelation, which takes a bit more work to put together. But this is exactly what we can see the church doing over the first four centuries of its history. And I know many of you enjoyed that seminar yesterday. And I love history, but I'm going to resist and not go into it in detail. But let me give you at least a conceptual guide to how I think we arrived at the particular language of Trinity and why that is important. I just want to note here that I'm trying to give you tools to think, not just the answers. The first tool is to think about the economic imminent axis. That the processions of God, the life that he has in himself, are revealed by the missions of God, his outer works, particularly in the sending of the Son and the Spirit. 
So we conceptualize this like an axis. God in himself, his aseity is at the top, called the imminent or sometimes the ontological trinity. And then at the bottom, the economic trinity. Economic is the works of God in time and history. And as we've seen, the New Testament proclaims that through the gospel, God is made known by the sending of the Son and the Spirit within time and space. That God made known that his unity was a tri-unity when he sent the Son and the Spirit. And through the economic, through what we see as Jesus walked on earth, as the Spirit was poured out, we see that, far, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, that he showed more than he told in a way. God didn't say, I have a son. He said, this is my son. One theologian says that all the long lines of the life of Christ reach up towards the life of God in himself. All the trajectories of our salvation are launched towards something greater than salvation. See, we enter this axis at the bottom. We had to wait for God to show himself to us, to come to us. But as we look back along the lines of salvation history of the Son and the Spirit being sent, we see that these aren't just temporal phenomena, but that they issued forth from God's eternal being. This is insight we couldn't have got by ourselves or even just with the Old Testament alone. It took the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Through the economic, we get to know the imminent. But it goes both ways because as we get to know the imminent and understand that God has this inner life, this inner dynamic, we can actually start to understand more about his outer works, his creation, his works of redemption. It's a bit of an iterative process. And it's from the unique, eternal, infinitely deep and utterly free relations of God in himself that Christ emerges as the presence of God with us. Have a pause, turn to the person next to you and just see if you can explain what I said in one or two sentences. How do we use the economic imminent axis? Okay, you'll get to wrestle through that in your review groups. What we're not saying is that there are two trinities, okay? It's not saying that there is one trinity up here and one down there. It's our experience of them. God in himself, God toward us 
in the sending of the Son and the Spirit, the works in creation. Now the point of this axis is to ask the question, how much can we claim between the two poles? I suggest that how you deal with that question is actually at the root of a lot of the controversy and heresy that we come across in Trinitarian theology. Either you end up collapsing the poles together or you separate them too far apart. Uh, one way to talk about this is there's the maximalist approach or the minimalist approach. See, in the maximalist approach, we end up uh, collapsing them together. We can it says that we can deduce most, even all, of what God is by what God does. That's intentionally messy. <laughs> it's kind of saying all we see is all there is. God is exhausted by his revelation to us. And actually, sometimes it can lead down the way of compromising God's society by saying God is actually contingent on his creation because he needed creation, he needed salvation to actualize himself in order to be Father, Son, and Spirit, that he kind of grew into it. That's where the maximalist approach can end up, when you collapse them into each other, that you claim too much from the economic on the other side of the spectrum is the minimalist approach, which is far more cautious. At its extreme, its extreme, it says that God really shows nothing of himself, or at least very little through what he does. He does stuff, but shows nothing. So if you collapse him, you end up saying that God is fully revealed in his acts of creation and salvation, that everything we see him doing in the world is what constitutes his eternal being. And I think this is what's behind Arianism. It can tend towards a tritheism, saying that there are three gods because we saw three persons. But I think that compromises aspects of God that are important. The second opposite extreme is to divorce these two aspects, to emphasize that God is mystery to the point that there is little to no correlation between God as he is and God in what he does. And this is the tendency of modalism. To say that God isn't really triune, there's not really three persons, it's just God appearing like that. The great ventriloquist act. So what is the answer? How much can we claim? Now if you want a dot point response, you're not going to get it. I want you to sit with this tension, to talk it through, to wrestle with it, to test it against the Bible, but I will give you some pointers in dot point form, just not the answers. Some of the pointers to be aware of. One is, I think, that being aware of these extremes, whether we separate it or collapse it, can help us reflect on what our default is. Do we think we've got God nailed, or do we think he's ultimately unknowable? I wonder where you sit. Secondly, always start with what Scripture says clearly and move from there. Scripture, for example, at least claims that the Son is at the Father's side before he became flesh. He was God and was with God, John says. We have some ground to start making claims about the pre-existent God. 
And third, and this is more of a logical outcome, if there is no connection between the poles, between who God is in himself and who he is for us, I think the gospel falls apart. Remember the bike wheel. We have to move between the topics of theology in relation to God. And if we lose a sense that we can know God at all, our salvation will not stand. You with me? Hang in there. We've got one more chunky section. And then we'll pull the threads together. Using this schema, this axis, how do we assemble the doctrine of the Trinity? How is it that three equals one? Well, the simplest and most basic articulation of what became an orthodox Trinitarian statement is this. There's one what and three who's. And no, I'm not being Dr. Zeus right now. One what and three who's. The language that the church employed is that God is one being, one oozier is the Greek term. And yet that one being is three persons, hypostasis. This is the language of the Nicene Creed, the fruit of many years of debate and reaction to heresies which forced a sharpening of how we read Scripture. The church started with and held to what we started with, the oneness of God and God alone, that there is none like him. Then, in observing the sending of the Son and the Spirit, the testimony to those events, we can conclude that the Father is God. We see that the Son is God by what he does and says. And following that, we see that the Spirit is God. But likewise... For example, at the baptism, we can also discern that there is distinction. The Father is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father, and so on. You sometimes see it in this kind of diagram. So the church used metaphysical language to speak of God as one oozier, one being or essence, but that that one oozier exists in three Hupostasis, three persons. But we just have to be careful with that term persons. Because when we think person, we think kind of an individual self, complete with their own will and so on. But if we bring that and import that understanding into how we think about Jesus, I think we're going to ask the wrong questions. So we need to be careful with the language we use and what is meant by it. See, the goal was to be able to speak of God in a way that didn't divide his essence, right? We wanted to hold to the simplicity of God. We didn't want to say we had many gods suddenly. Nor did we want to collapse what is revealed in the Son and the Spirit and the Father, the distinctions. And so the church had to make sense of the New Testament testimony without throwing off Old Testament orthodoxy. Uh, this is then fleshed out by observing that each person in the Trinity has the qualities pertaining to divine being. If you want a bit of a fun read later, you can have a look at the Athanasian Creed, which asserts this, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all share in the divine qualities of being uncreated, immeasurable, eternal, almighty, Lord, 
that they are co-equal, co-eternal, of the same stuff. They are, the church said, homoousios, which is the same stuff, of the same essence. They're distinct according to their persons and their relations that the father begets the son. It's not the son who begets the father. The son is eternally generated and the spirit is eternally breathed out or proceeding. There is a, a distinction of relations, but not a distinction of being. There is not three gods, nor is there lesser gods. Now, while the intricacies of this all remains a mystery, we affirm that by receiving the revelation of Son and Spirit, by listening to the beloved Son, each person is co-equal, co-eternal. There's not a gradient of godness, no greater or lesser persons, but a mysterious, wonderful, unified diversity. Now, hopefully you had good uh, input yesterday in the seminars to think about some of the dangers that come with that, whether what we see from history or in Mike Paget's one about how we think about the world. We can go down all kinds of lines where we start projecting our agendas onto God's being. We particularly see that in the realm of things like gender relations, of how humans interact and we think God must be just like that. You might well like to discuss some of these in your groups a bit more. I just want to very, very briefly go through two questions to kind of test what we've put together so far. The first question is, is the Son eternal? Now, we've kind of answered this already, so I'm just going to skirt over this very, very quickly. But the question is, does he sit on the side of the creator or the creature? And Arius, the guy I've mentioned a couple of times, the Arian uh, heresy... This guy read his Bible and he noticed differentiation in places like John chapter 1 and Colossians 1, which describes Jesus as the image of God, the firstborn over all creation. And he had said to himself, hmm, I know what it is to be a son. A son must be brought into being. So God must have made the son at some point, maybe before the rest of the world, but he was still created. Now, we should discuss what's wrong with that reading. I hope you think about that in your review groups. But you see what he's done? He's taken the economic work of God, the bottom of the axis, and kind of run it through a human filter of his experience and projected it back onto the imminent trinity. He's made conclusions of who God is in himself based on his own human experience, forgetting that God is not like us. God can beget eternally. Long story short, Nicaea, the great church ecumenical council ended up condemning Arianism and it put forward the language that we believe that Jesus is not just God, but that he eternally proceeds, sorry, he, he is eternally begotten of the Father. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Second question we come up against that we can test our working so far is, is the son subordinate? Is the son subordinate? And is that a function of his 
mission, his incarnation? Or is it something to do with his eternal nature? Does it fit on the bottom of the axis or the top? Now, you'd be forgiven for not realizing that this question has been hotly debated in recent times and is often the basis for male-female relationships in the church and the debates around that. And because of that, I cannot address all the angles here. Plus, I've hit my hour. But I'm going to give you the gist. I told you today would be a little bit longer. Some people look at the mission of the Son and they see Jesus obeying God. John chapter 5, verse 19. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do whatever he sees the Father doing. Or John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Or Philippians 2, verse 8. Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the maximalists, the ones who want to claim too much, Read this and say, well, there you have it. Jesus is all about obedience, so therefore the eternal Son must be eternally subordinate to the Father. That's part of who he is. The minimalists come back and say, no, 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 no. This is a function of the economy. We can't make that claim about the inner life of God. All we can say about the inner life of God is that he begets the Son and breathes out a spirit, and we need to stop there. I wonder what you think. Does this square with our crash barriers of simplicity and aseity? Is the Son's obedience part of his relation within the Trinity, or is it just part of his mission? Again, I'm not going to give you the simple answer, but here are some thoughts from me. First, I think it's very hard to avoid the concept of obedience in relation to the Son and the Father. It's there throughout the Gospels. But we always have to keep that in the broader perspective of what is revealed in the Father-Son relationship, it is not like me and my sons. I'm often in a battle of wills <laughs> with my children. Put your shoes on. Don't hit your brother. See, while Jesus speaks of obeying and doing the Father's will, it is never, never in the sense of being cajoled or pressed into it. It's voluntary and full of delight. There is a deep, rich mutuality of delight between Father and Son, the Son with whom I'm well pleased because he is the Son who does the Father's will. Secondly, there does seem to be what we might say is a priority of sorts attributed to the Father by Jesus. That even most basically, the Father is the one who sends the Son. But it's a priority not of their being, not that God is the Father is greater and the Son is lesser, but there's some sort of shape to their relationship. And thirdly, we need to hold that there still remains one God. His simplicity, that they have one divine nature shared by the persons. Now at this point, some theologians disagree whether the Trinity has one will or three wills. We don't have time to delve into that. 
But we need to hold that there is never, never any subordination of nature within the Trinity. The Son is not a lesser God. And lastly, I just think as we think about this question, the word subordinate carries a lot of baggage these days. And theology always needs to think how it is articulated and heard. Perhaps we're better to speak of the fittingness that the Son is the one sent to do the Father's will because he delights to do so as a son. See John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, for example. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life in obedience only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. See, we see here both the Son's obedience to the Father in acting out the Father's will and the Son's own authority. I think God's will is undivided. There's never a tension between what the Father wants and what the Spirit wants and what the Son wants. There is complexity in Jesus because he has two natures as we saw last night. A human nature and a divine nature, mysteriously united. But it's in that space that we see his sonship expressed. But that doesn't take us away from the reality that the divine son was sent by the father, sent but coming voluntarily. All right. Let's pull this together. Where do we end up with all this? We are mainly UCS students here, and so we are concrete thinkers. So you're probably asking, well, what is the point of the Trinity? Why are we bothering with all of this? I want to say, most simply, the Trinity matters because if you want to know God, God is Trinity. If he is not Trinity, he is unknowable. See, amidst all the metaphysics and philosophy and controversies, look to the mission of the Son and do not let go of this most precious of truths that Jesus is God with us. Fundamentally, that is what we're claiming. That there's no smoke and mirrors in the flesh is the eternal, self-existent, utterly free God entering into the waters of baptism alongside us. The God who is from his perfect, happy, eternal life now opens himself up to be God with us and God for us. But what I find incredible is that this is not only that God acted to save, even as amazing as that is, but that as he did so, he freely opened up his inner life to us. God's mutually delighting, ceaselessly praising, reciprocally sharing, always appreciating, ever depending, and love and life of the Spirit and the Father and the Son is now accessible to us. That God is love means that God is not distant. He has come near. And from that profound truth, our salvation flows. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. 
that God himself is the fountain of life and salvation to us. His acts to save didn't come from a frugality, from a scarcity. God didn't stand back and sigh, well, I suppose I could save you, but it will cost. No, it came from the abundance, the wealth of life in himself, full and genuine love. It didn't happen by remote control. God gave himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes, his only son, the son he loves, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you do not have the Trinity, our salvation falls apart. Its very shape and pattern stems from the inner life of God. If you take away, for example, the eternal generation of the sun, it's like pulling a thread on a knitted jumper until the whole thing unravels. But more than that, in the process of saving, God has revealed more of his nature, such that we know God now as Father. As Father. Have you dwelt on how precious that description of the Christian life is that we call the same God we saw in Isaiah 40, the same God who holds the oceans in his hands, for whom there is no one like him, we can call him Abba, Father. It's the relations of the Son and the Father inherent to God, brought down and extended to us in the gift of adoption. Jesus is God's own true son, eternally begotten, a son by nature and origin and essence. We are sons by adoption, but no less truly so. Ivor Davison says this, at the heart of the benefits of Christ, of which the gospel speaks, lies a specific blessing. The opening up of the eternal son's native sphere to others. The drawing of contingent beings into the realm of his intimate, eternal, secure relation to his father. And with this, friends, comes great assurance. Because Jesus is the son. The exact representation of God's being. What he says is true. I give my life for my sheep, that they may have eternal life, that they may never perish, that no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them, can snatch you out of the Father's hand. From go to woe, God has achieved our salvation and our rescue and he does that because he is the Father who sent the Son and the Spirit. And how does all this come true for us? How is it that you and I are made sons of the living God? Well, you have to wait till tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for us and for our salvation, you came down from heaven. 
were incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and you were made truly human. We thank you, our almighty God, that you are not far, you are not unknowable, you are not distant, you are not cold towards us, but that you have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lead us to know you as the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Help us grasp hold of these deep truths to treasure who you are. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.